I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Are we ready on the back straight? Are we ready on the home straight? Over to you, Mr. Starter. Hello and welcome to the Ruler podcast for issue 56. I'm Ian Parkinson and for this podcast I'm joined by the journalist and author Max Leonard and Ruler's editor Ian Cleverly. Uh, welcome gentlemen. First of all, I should say uh, where I'm welcoming you to because we're here on a slightly windy day at the uh, legendary Hernhill Velodrome in South London. Um, the velodrome was the home to the 1948 Olympics. It was nearly closed down uh, a few years ago, uh, threatened with closure because it needed a new track surface. But now it's been, uh, thanks to the work of hundreds of volunteers, it's been restored, uh, new track surface, new fence, new lighting and uh, awaiting next year hopefully a new pavilion. Um, Ian I know you are familiar with Hernhill, we've ridden here together on occasion. I've been coming down here for decades, yeah I I like the sound of all that new everything now, I need new legs uh, sadly Uh, but apart from that it's it's, it's getting there isn't it it's getting there. It is getting there and and it's it's an amazing place isn't it, there's something about that it's kind of steeped in British cycling history isn't it, there's a real atmosphere here. It is, you know people that have ridden down here over the years from Uncle Till to Tommy Simpson to you know it's amazing amazing history and the Olympics of course. Max have you uh, have you ridden here are you familiar with Hernhill? I've ridden here just a handful of times and that was quite a long time ago and probably the last time I was down actually was for the um, when Rollerpalooza were running the Muddy Hell cyclocross and it definitely looks a very different now and the new surface looks great yeah, it's a shame that uh, the muddy hell only were, um, happened a couple of times actually wasn't it because it was did bring a different sort of atmosphere to the place it's a great race great race. if you've never raced in the dark it, it's extraordinary it's it, i don't know why it, what it is about racing in the dark but it, it kind of makes you feel like you're going much faster yeah, we're um, racing here with the new uh, floodlights as well is a little bit spooky because you get weird shadows coming over your shoulder um you know, when the when the lights come on and that's uh, that takes a bit of getting used to as well. weird shadows as in like ghosts of cyclists past <laughs> yeah. or it, actually in my case it's normally just people overtaking me oh, but okay. uh, even yeah. if people aren't overtaking it feels as if they uh, feels as if they are um let me tell you what we have on this edition of the ruler podcast max uh, you're here max leonard you're here uh, largely because you've written a fascinating story about the uh, french rider of the 30s and 40s rene vieto uh, more specifically you've written a story about his toe. Yeah, Rene Vietto's toe is one of those weird legends that the tour above and beyond many races kind of seems to attract. Um, briefly, the, the, the story goes that Rene in 1947 tour, uh, his, he injured his toe somehow and his toe went septic and it was amputated rather than um, him abandoning the race. Uh, the tour stopped in Nice that year, or in Monaco, and he went to Nice uh, where his doctor was and had it taken off and then carried on. And, and the story from that point on actually gets a bit weirder, doesn't it? And there are all kinds of, uh, of, of myths. There's some twists and turns in it, but there was just enough 
of a grain of truth in it that I thought it was worth investigating. It was kind of hung around so long that I thought, well, someone's got to go and try and find this toe. And we'll talk to you a little bit more about that later on, including lots, lots of other stories about René Vieto, because he was a deeply eccentric man in many ways, wasn't he? He was. He, he's one of, someone also who seemed to attract weird stories like that. And, and uh, actually the photos on the piece seem to bring that out. There's a lot of weird photos of him there too. So that was very pleasing to see. OK, and there's a bit of a cliffhanger about his toe, which we, which we won't reveal now, but uh, we will towards the, end of the, towards the end of the podcast. We'll also be uh, choosing our favourite photographs from this issue of Ruler. We'll be talking about the Dauphiné, um, taking a look at what else is in the magazine. And of course, there's the Ruler competition as well. Well, uh, first of all, though, Ian, I was very jealous of you recently when you said you were off to meet the amazing Hannah Grant. Um, yeah, she's got a new cookbook out, as I'm sure lots of people are aware, because it's, it's kind of everywhere, um, the Grand Soul Cookbook. And um, I met Hannah before. I met her on the Vuelta last year, and when I did a piece on, on a lot of the, the Grand Tour chefs, so I was fascinated by the whole, the whole idea of, of these, these guys, mostly Danish, but um, for some reason... Um, but 10 years ago, they didn't exist. Teams didn't have them. They, they went to hotels and they put up with whatever slot was put in front of them. And now you've got people like Hannah and, and Soren at, at, at Team Sky. They're putting, like, really, really good quality food uh, on the plates uh, every, every night for the riders, and it's, it's amazing stuff. If anyone doesn't know, Hannah's the uh, chef of the Saxo Tinkoff team. She posts on social media as Daily Stews, and I think she currently has around 11,000 followers on Twitter, mainly because she just posts loads of pictures of amazing-looking food that she's serving up to the, to the riders. Well, that's, that's, that's the key. It, it's, it's what I did the feature on the chefs. I started off saying, you, you get home from work at 7 o'clock or half 7 or whatever, you're knackered, you look in the fridge, you kind of think about what you're going to cook, and it's like, mm, can I be bothered? And then you, you go, you, have, you think, I'll just, I'll just have a quick look on Twitter, and then you see what they've done, and you just, you just I give up, you know. Um, but actually, actually, I have tried, I think we've done about half a dozen things out of a book so far, and every one has been an absolute corker. Yeah, I've done a few as well, and as, as you say in the interview that we're going to hear um, with Hannah in a moment, the, when, yeah, my kids in particular, when they first see fruit in salad with yeah, tuna yeah. And, and stuff, yeah, they look wrong, a bit, it? yeah, it is a bit yeah. wrong. But then they eat it, and they get it. You went along to meet Hannah Grant, and uh, one of the things she told you was that she didn't just cook the food and write the recipes for a book. Took the pictures, edited them. It was it was a lot of work to do it all because it has to look fresh, you know. There's no fake food styling in it. All the food that's in it has has actually been edible. So it's uh, to, to keep it fresh and good looking. Yeah. Then pictures, and then uh, next dish. And then, and then eat it. It was crazy, but it was the worth it. Was it hard work cutting through what recipes should go in and what should leave out and? I did the Tour de France and I wrote down the entire menu through the Tour de France. So I had it roughly out and then I sat and I looked at it. Of course, in a cookbook, you don't want dishes that are too similar. So, of course, you know, with, with two weeks uh, from each other, if I'd done two dishes that were too similar, I'd change that out, take dishes in from a different race and so on and so on. But everything in the book has been cooked for the riders at a certain point. Because you, you do a lot of chicken, don't you? But you I, do a lot of chicken. You I do, do chicken every day on every, race. Every day, yeah. It's... It's kind of like the animal or the protein that everybody can agree on to, to like if they're not feeling adventurous with eating fish or lamb or whatever is the alternative is. So, you know, no matter what nationality or personality you are, you can always go for the safe bet chicken if you're not in the mood for, for the other option. You will supply an alternative. Yeah, for the, there's always an alternative because they go crazy. If I only serve chicken, they will go crazy. Yeah. But if it's not there, they will go equally crazy. Cooking for riders on the road has come a long way in, I think we're talking 10 years now, since, since Bjorn Reese yeah. came up with the idea. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the old school way of thinking food for riders was chicken and pasta, yeah. um, preferably really dry chicken um, and pasta and ketchup. So... What we work with is incorporating lots of veggies, lots of cold-pressed fats, good lean proteins, and then 
encouraging the riders to mix up the, the, the dense cups. So it's not only pasta, but we do potatoes, lentils, quinoa, uh, brown rice, rice, like all kinds of uh, other options. Because um, it is quite hard on the digestive system to only eat pasta. I can't remember if this was you or, or Soren from Sky. Do you do sort of big treats on the rest day so that the riders have got something to yeah, look I, forward I, to? Yeah, I don't think Sky gets any treats ever. <laughs> <laughs> Tinkoff Saxo gets treats yeah. when they do well. Okay, yeah. you that. Zia that said that. <laughs> um, the night before the rest day, we'll do like a nice comfort meal for them. Usually yeah. we do like a build-your-own-burger, super thin, crusty pizza. So it's kind of like it's the night where they can sit, relax, knowing that tomorrow there's not a grueling stage waiting they can you know have some fun and for a few hours feel like they're not in the middle of this crazy um super hot uh, bike race well, I'll, i'll tell you what i've been through so far having had the book for a week is uh we had the moroccan chicken yeah. which was fabulous at the weekend coconut chicken except we replaced uh, the, the sort of thai style thing except we replaced the, the chicken with the salmon because my daughter doesn't eat meat it's perfect last night asparagus soft boiled eggs and capers but I did overdo the eggs slightly, which was kind of disappointing. But you know what? Get to do it again. Exactly. Next, time, next time, I will get it Better tweet on. it. Better on, yeah. <laughs> just need to come out a minute earlier, and I probably didn't plunge them in cold enough for That's That's the thing, yeah. Yeah, state, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and the other one, which was a cracker, was uh, broccoli, walnuts, and blackberries, which my kids normally go, what are we doing with fruit in with the vegetables? Why blackberries? They're, you know, they're beautiful, they're tasty, they're juicy. It's also a way of kind of like adding some, like a little bit of sweet and tangy depth and flavors to the dishes. So it's not only broccoli, you kind of like get more, um, you kind of like lift the broccoli's flavor, you know, when adding acidity and, and, and sweetness to it. But it's kind of like, I mean, you know, it's, it looks inviting, it looks beautiful. Um, it's interesting, it's different. It's not just, you know, oh, boring old broccoli again. Now, one thing you've told me previously which which i couldn't get my head around um is that it's possible for riders to put on weight during a grand tour tell me how that works yeah it is crazy it's crazy i mean the stages every day aren't um equally long they're not all the same and it's easy for a rider to just click off the the, you know the the thoughts and just go automatic and eat the same food every day so and then when they're on the bike again they actually take in a lot of energy and bars gels little sandwiches drinks and so on So the balance between loading up, getting ready for the next day, and not overdoing it, gaining weight, is, is very, very fine. If I know there's a short stage the day after, we'll kind of like keep it a little less on the dense carbs and kind of try and remind them, you know, tomorrow, guys, you don't need to, to bulk up like super crazy. Because yeah, when you're yeah. down to the details of having a fat percentage of, you know, four, four and a half, it is, you know... Tiny, 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 tiny bits of extra weight that'll, you know, make the difference whether you make it over the mountain fast enough or not. Finally, when you when you reach Paris at the end of three weeks, um, you must be dead on your feet. Do you just go and lie down for three days and, and in a quiet, dark room? I don't cook for three days for sure. I at can least, tell you that yeah, at no, least. No, yeah. No. You you need rest for sure, and uh, you need someone else to cook for you when you get home. Good. Well, uh, good luck with getting somebody to cook for you when you get home. Thank and, you. Um, <laughs> Have a good tour. Thank you so much. So that was Hannah Grant of uh, Team Saxo Tinkoff, and her Grand Tour cookbook is out now, as is also Velo Chef by Henrik Orr of Team Sky. I haven't seen that one, have you? Uh, I've not seen it yet, no. I guess there's always been, hasn't there, a sort of uh, obsession amongst cyclists with food. If you get two or three cyclists together, eventually they will start talking about food. Well, there is an obsession, but but um, what's interesting is, it's kind of, is how, how it's changed. You know, when I were a lad, it were, it were fig rolls and... Uh, Jam butties, basically. And that was, If you were lucky, was a lot. Yeah. Even so, there's still two schools of thought, isn't there? At least among amateurs, there's, there's people who, re- you know, really go for the 
high quality, best thinking, you know, nutritional ideas and others who just take cycling a lot as an excuse to eat all the time and, and whatever they like. Hannah hinted at something in that interview actually when she was talking about the, the sort of fat levels of professional cyclists now and the extraordinary advantage that people are trying to gain now by bringing their body weight and their power to weight ratio so low. There's almost an air of eating disorder about professional cycling and about oh, many professional that, cyclists. I think that's a that's an, an ongoing uh, thing that, that uh, we'd like to do something on in the future that we've been talking about doing um, it is, um, it's getting quite ridiculous, but as a human freak myself, who happens to have 1% body fat, just and I have no choice in that, I can eat until you know, until I'm going to explode I still have 1% body fat um, I don't know, is it dangerous? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm I, I kind of feel like I, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm really going for a a big ride and like I haven't got the reserves that other people have got to call on maybe I don't know if it works like that I guess it's dangerous if your body is not designed like that in the first place I think yeah you are uh, one of those people who's Freak, naturally yeah. no, <laughs> I, mean, I think you're naturally you're naturally slender Ian um, <laughs> but the uh, but some people aren't designed to be like that yeah, I'm certainly yeah. not but I remember reading I can't remember whose wife it was but there was some uh, professional cyclist's uh, wife was saying that during the sort of middle of the uh, uh, season sort of you know after a couple of grand tours she can actually see the internal organs in her husband's back as he as he leant forward you know the the internal organs were sort of poking through the skin he had so little fat on and that, that sort of I was watching Chris Froome climbing only the other day and he is a I know he's naturally slender but he's a he's a stick man these days isn't he his arms are yeah. painfully thin Brad Wiggins as well when he's a tall weight it's 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 scary <laughs> scary thing to say yeah it doesn't look altogether healthy but yeah, because even if you talk to you know relatively recent riders like Dave Miller, they will say that when they started, actually, um, even though France and Italy have reputations as great culinary nations, the food in they used to get in French and Italian hotels is pretty rubbish a lot of the time. Even following the tour, it becomes a, an ordeal of, of nutrition. You get, you can probably get a half decent steak frites in most places, but the trouble is, is that that's really all you can get. So you just have it's kind of a monoculture where you go to twenty minor towns around France and, and you just eat the same thing and it's not very good and, and it takes its toll after a couple of weeks and, and then of course there's the other side there's you know people like uh, Jacques Anquetil who you know, would normally start the day with a couple of pheasants and a bottle of decent burgundy before a, Why before, not? Yeah, uh, before a race and in fact Jacques Anquetil uh, raced here did some um, exhibition races here at Herne Hill in 1964 and um, Cycling Weekly or Cycling as it then was were particularly interested in his diet and, the, and they said before his races Jacques ate hors d'oeuvre sausages meat and salad sweetbreads in cream sauce with creamed spinach and fresh fruit and he drank spa water and coffee. You can almost hear the sort of sneering at what the uh, foreigners would get up to in that uh, in that quote, can't you? Unbelievable. And, and all that lot stayed down. Did well, they, we, we did assume so. On that? Well, I want to know is where he got sweetbreads in cream sauce with cream spinach in, in Herne Hill. Rene Vieto, and we will talk in more detail about his toe shortly, he had some unorthodox views on food and drink as well, didn't he, Max? Yeah, he didn't seem to like eating at all. He didn't like sleeping either, but eating was a particular enemy, and he'd take... Once he was kind of team leader, he'd take people on 300-kilometre-plus training rides and uh, force them not to eat. And, and when one of his domestic one day said, look, I just can't go on, he said, well, eat grass. And, and I think the guy actually had to, which was... <laughs> Didn't he once uh, attempt to ride round France with, with no food at all, effectively, because he thought that food wasn't necessary for nutrition? Yeah, after he retired as a, as a, a racer, he, he did try this this well he, he planned this incredible stunt he, be, he did become convinced that you needed just vitamins and you know other nutritional aids and that we actually didn't need food so he planned a i think it was a seven day tour de france so it was it was a long kind of you know 400 500k audax style 
stages each day, but he planned to do it only with a musette full of pills and stuff like that. Someone talked him out of that. Well, it, it, history does not record the, the why he didn't do it, but I think it's safe to say it's probably better that he didn't do it. Right, favourite photographs then. Uh, Max, which, uh, which photograph in, in this edition, number 56, caught your eye? Well, the one that I picked is um, by Michael Bland, and it's of Roman Bardet, and it's the first one in uh, Michael Bland and Andy McGrath's article on Bardet, and it's taken at his home in Clermont-Ferrand. Uh, it's got some interesting lighting in it, but really uh, it's just nice because he's such an unlikely figure, Bardet, for you know a cycling prodigy. It, he looks a little bit kind of scarecrowish in it. He's got a cardigan on. It's a bit schoolboyish, and... It's just very different from his demeanour on the bike, I think, is what I like about it. Um, and I, I guess if you remember him in the Dauphiné and descending the Col d'Alos and, and attacking, it, it just seems very at odds with you know what you see on the bike and what you see off. But he seems like a really nice guy in the interview. And I've got a soft spot for him and for Clément Ferrand because I used to live there. That's, that's where he lives and where he's from and where he trains. So it was uh, great to see the pictures. Ian, how about you? Um, well, I've got a soft spot for team time trials, which is why we've got a whole gallery of of uh, team time trials to kick off the magazine i just think they're wonderful things um and um marshall Kappel, who uh this is the first thing he's done for us in the magazine he's also done the feature on the on the dauphine but uh he's done all these amazing team time trial shots and the one that really struck me first was the one of etics quick step he's head on they're in tight formation they're coming through the trees and there's a light shining through from behind that just that presumably is coming from the following car um that just sets the whole thing off beautifully. And I just, the way they're so tight together, I know that it's just like, for me, it's the perfect. It's an amazing thing to watch work. a team time trial, isn't it? It's always the, the sort of slightly unfashionable. People always moan about team time trials for some reason that they're, you know, they're slightly dull spectacle, but they are an amazing thing to watch. Beats an individual time trial, hands down. It can also be quite entertaining to watch, watch it done badly as well. Oh, it? yeah, it's, when it falls apart. Yeah, it's really amazing how apart. many pro teams really can't get a team time trial together on their own. Well, when I was, I was putting the, the, the picks together and I was sort of dimly recalled. Um, Disastrous team time trial from a few years back in the tour, uh, Montpellier, where they were they were they were coming off the road left, right, and centre. There was there was a couple of particular corners, and there was half the team going into a field. There was there was people crashing on a second corner. They were coming down, and it was carnage, absolute nightmare. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, nobody enjoys watch, watching crashing, really, do they? But it, it, it's it's just when a team time trial goes badly wrong, it it, it, it is um, quite quite fun. And when it goes right as well, actually, you know, a team that really gets it right is a wonderful thing to watch. I'm going to cheat slightly because I'm going to uh, choose the same picture, uh, favourite picture, as Ian Stannard, which is the, the one of uh, Cipollini's 97 Cannondale. Oh, uh, with the spinnages. With the spinnages, with his name on. The spinnages. It's, it's just gorgeous. It's one of those uh, bikes that sort of just sums up an era for me, like sort of, I don't know, uh, Beppe Cerrone's Colnago. Um, it accompanies an article about Cannondale, which I think is, is, is really interesting. I think Cannondale are quite an interesting brand, aren't they? Because they're, although they're American, they, they really have uh, a kind of Euro sensibility about them, unlike some of the other American uh, bike brands. They, they partly, I suspect, because of their association with teams like Seiko. And they're, they're a little bit more European and flash than some of the other American, uh, American brands, I think. Let's talk about uh, René Vietto's toe. Max, what was it that kind of attracted you to the story in the first place? I guess it's it's something that you read in tour history books, and and there's anyone who's who's got into it a bit will know that there's books that are uh, very well researched and very well done, and there's some books that are just full of the same stories mentioned over and over again, and and probably most of them aren't true, or, or they're they're not, you know, mostly not factual. And this toe story seemed to turn up in in you know in good books and in bad books, but no one had really ever looked into it. And and I like these stories about the tour. I mean, I don't mind that mostly they're not true 
you know they're things that we believe about the tour anyway and and that says as much about the race as, as if you know uh abdel kadir zaf which was another one i i researched into at one point the, the algerian who drank a bottle of wine and went the wrong way maybe you know that's maybe not quite the truth of it all but you know it's the story everyone knows and that says something about the tour anyway so I think we sort of forget don't we that you're quite how much of the history of the tour in the early days was basically made up to sell newspapers mm. wasn't it? because no one could check yeah absolutely and and you know, well, I think that's part of the early races. That once the once the tour was through, the only record of it was in in the paper. And and there's, we've got a great record of amazing photos and and stage reports right from the first ever day of the race. But um, you know, that in the end becomes the history. But yeah, the the toe was and it's, sorry for the pun. It was a footnote in several people's books. And I just thought, well, you know, it keeps on turning up in in all these histories. It would probably be worth having a look, see if it's actually there. And because the story was that he, his toe was chopped off. Uh, but not actually disposed of. It ended up in a, uh, a jar in some bar in Marseille. That was the story. Yeah, the, the story went that he, he had it chopped off on the rest day, completed the tour, uh, and that the toe was preserved in formaldehyde, put in a jar and was kept behind a bar in Marseille. Um, and didn't he try and convince Apo Lazaridis, who was his, one of his domestics, to uh, chop his toe off as well so that he could share the suffering? Yeah, that's, that's the second half of the story, and, and that one I was always more sceptical about because I, I think the right version I read was that he... Had, was doing it to convince Lazaridis or to show him the pain and suffering necessary to win the tour um, and the sacrifices you had to make. But given that Vieto never won the tour, I just thought it was a bit spurious. Um, and in fact, Vieto is pretty much famous for not winning the tour. Um, well, he was famous sort of in uh, one of the tours in the 30s, wasn't it? 34, I think, for having to sacrifice his own chances for his team leader, Antonin Magna, when Magna had a uh, mechanical problem, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and this is one of those things that, that's precisely what we were saying about the legends made around the tour, and there's a great photo of it in the article. Uh, Vieto sitting on a wall crying because he's given his front wheel to his team leader. Um, I think, it, well, it happened twice. There were, there were two separate instances, and uh, both in the Pyrenees, one the day after the other. And the first time he gave his wheel, the second time he actually gave his bike, uh, and Antonin Magna ended up winning the tour. Lots of people think Vieto sacrificed his chance as a 20-year-old to you know, take the yellow jersey and win himself. And there's this great photo of Vieto on a wall crying with a, a bike with uh, no front wheel. But the version actually used in Rouleur is, I, I think anyway, the one that shows that Jack Godet is standing right next to him. And Godet was the assistant director of the tour, and he was also the main journalist writing up for Lotto every day. And uh, I think you can tell it's him because he used to wear a pith helmet. That was his signature. Um, and apparently he spotted this as a kind of, for the propaganda potential of it it's straight a great story, away. yeah. Yeah, and printed it the next day. And, and that kind of sealed Vieto's reputation and, and made his fame as the, you know, the guy who... You know, nobody sacrificed his chances for his team leader. So how did you go about tracking down, or first of all, checking the truthfulness, but uh, secondly, tracking down René Vieto's toe? Uh, a lot of internet research to begin with. Um, a lot of forums full of old French guys who are you know, full of memorabilia and um, people showing off collections of bikes, talking about old bikes that they have, um, that kind of thing. And the other lucky reference I found actually was in an article from 2013 written by Jeremy Whittle. Uh, he mentioned the name of René Bertrand, who was an old friend of Vieto's and was his um, bike shop was uh, one that the Viet- René Vieto brand bikes were sold through. He was effectively René Vieto's greatest fan. Yes, he was. He was born actually 14 years to the day after Vieto and remembers seeing him, seeing him race into Marseille during the 1934 tour when Vieto became a superstar. And he said from that moment on, it was, you know, all about Vieto and... Bertrand, he was a very interesting guy. He was a uh, director sportif for Mercier in the 60s. So he, he was Poulidor's 
DS and Barry Hoban, I think, as well. And his bike shop that he eventually opened with his brother in Marseille was uh, a dealer for Bartali bikes as well. So he was big friends with Bartali and uh, Vieto was really his, his main man and they had a lifelong friendship. Most important question, though, does he have René Vieto's toe? I'm not sure we should uh, divulge that, do you think, mate? You're going to have to make people buy the, uh, well, buy the I'm magazine. Gonna, I'm going to take my editor's advice here and... Um, and leave it be right now. I, I, think. I, th- I think we, I think we hang on to that one. And all I'd, I would say in, in closing on this matter is that uh, Max's research did seem to involve drinking a lot of rosé and pastis in various bars in Marseille. Yeah. The game plan until I actually found René Bertrand and you know followed that lead up on on the internet was just to go to Marseille and try a few bars and see if any had kind of a, a jar with a toe in. Happen to have a, a tour rider's toe behind the bar. Yeah, you know, among the pickles and, and the crisps and that kind of thing. But um, but no, luckily I had a better lead than that. But it didn't stop me going and having a. a a little drink just for you know, symbolic purposes. OK, so if you want to find out whether uh, Max ever did find René Vieto's toe and what's happened to it, you're going to have to buy uh, edition 56. Um, what do you think, finally, what do you think um, the story of René Vieto uh, and his toe and all his other eccentricities, what do you think that tells us about the tour? It's interesting this year because there's a lot, you know, it's, it's the anniversary of, well, 30th anniversary of Bernard Hino's last win and we have all, the, we have Bardet, we've got um, Pinot, and all this younger generation coming up and as we speak they're actually not doing all that well in this year's tour but even so you know it seems like a good moment for, for French cycling but but Vieto's a funny guy because he you know his palmarès wasn't actually all that great he's he's known not exactly for his failure but he's not known for winning and, and it's it's one of those funny things well, why why is he remembered whereas and fated so much whereas more talented or, or more successful people aren't and and it's, I think it's quite revealing about the French attitude to the race. The French do love a brave loser, don't they? Mm. It, it's something that uh, also comes up in, in the, the Roman Bardet piece where, where he was a, a, awarded best French finisher, you know, a couple of years ago, and he's spitting feathers about it. It's just like, I don't, I don't want, you know, there's still, there's still a whole load of people who finished in front of me. It means nothing to me. And, uh, yeah, there is that, that kind of brave loser mentality thing, which... Uh, needs to be overcome I'd say okay uh, we're nearly at the end of this podcast um, competition Ian oh yes um, competition for last issue um, which was issue 55 uh, the winner for that oh I can't remember what the question was I know what the question was the question was how many times has the La Saint de Montvernier climb been used in the Tour de France um, which of course is none or you know this is the first time the winner of a uh, swanky new white ruler t-shirt is David Parmiter from Wiltshire and as he's from Wiltshire good on you same as me and what's the question for this edition uh, the question for this edition is based around uh, Martin Proctor's fabulous illustration uh, which uh, is about the 40th year of the Champs-Élysées being the finish of the Tour de France celebrating that um, the question is simply who will win on the Champs-Élysées the final stage on the Sunday so obviously you've got to get your entries in before, <laughs> before the final stage the final day of the Tour please uh, entries go to competition at ruler.cc uh, and I should also mention what the lucky winner will get which is um, a fabulous print uh, by Richard Mitchelson of his Z cover from issue 16 oh, that's amazing, uh, yeah. it is a lovely lovely print, print. Um, and the winner will get one of those ok Ian Cleverly thanks very much Max Leonard thanks uh, that's it for this edition of the Ruler podcast for edition 56 thanks for joining us here at Hernhill Velodrome uh, the Grand Tour cookbook by Hannah Grant is available online as is L'Anterre Rouge by Max Leonard and if you want to help with the continued revival and survival of Hernhill Velodrome go online and search for the Friends of Hernhill Velodrome you can sign up to membership or to make a donation that's it I'm Ian Parkinson see you next edition oh, oh.